Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. And we're back. You're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs, where I speak to bands and hear their stories of how they've been able to make their art more or less their full-time thing. I'm Giles Bidder. I write for the iPaper and I host a radio show on Soho Radio. And on this episode, we've got Alex Cameron with his saxophonist and business partner, Roy Malloy, on the eve of his new album, Oxy Music. He's an excellent storyteller, and as I found out in this episode, there's a few reasons why. This episode is supported by 2000 Trees Festival, taking place between the 6th and the 9th of July in Cheltenham, headlined by Idols, Jimmy Eat World, Thrice and Turnstile, who I saw a couple of weeks ago, and they were completely bonkers. Today, the festival will be announcing a seventh new band in as many days to play alongside The Regrets, Calva Louise, Strange Bones, and so many more. You can go to their website, 2000treesfestival.co.uk to see the full lineup as it stands. If you're set on going this year, but haven't got your ticket yet, you can get 10% off your ticket price 
using the voucher code 101pod. If you know you're going, you still haven't bought your ticket yet, use that voucher code. It costs nothing to type that in and it'll save you 10%. 2000treesfestival.co.uk If you want to go to an independent rock festival in the UK, this is the one to go to. Here's Alex Cameron and Roy Malloy on season two of 101 Part-Time Jobs. Oxy Music is out on the 11th of March. Cheers! So our first record, Jumping the Shark, was made at, at, at my home at the time. And I wrote it all while working full-time in an office, a government office, essentially a government legal office. Um, I worked at the New South Wales Ombudsman's office, which uh, in the in the police corruption division. So I was sort of an assistant to an investigator who uh, I, su- I suppose I w- it was my job to receive complaints from the public and from the police and then, uh, you know, I, I administer them and, and, uh, and file them under, you know, worth investigating or, or frivolous or potentially false. Um, so I was like, dealing with a, a lot of different voices and and communicating with a lot of different types of of uh of voices you know daily mm. you know, there'd be 30 40 50 new reports every day that needed addressing and so i was reading a ton of uh sort of very colloquial often very conversational reports because it would sometimes be recordings of people speaking or or someone typing everyone has their own way of speaking you know Mm. when they're when they're writing online and i think that informed a lot of what i do because i i I tend to think of my songs as as dialogue as opposed to you know a voice of god or a narrator Mm. um so often what i'm singing i've either heard someone say or i would be comfortable saying myself um I worry about getting too prose-like or too uh, grand in my language when I'm writing songs, you know. Um, but I do, I do distinctly remember thinking I'm I'm either really really good at this and no one knows yet, or I'm just like completely delusional and and wrong. And I mean, I sort of just I guess settled with the idea that either way I. I'm not really supposed to know, you know. The range of characters that you met is is a much w- wider range than than the average person. When you go out and meet someone or, you know, you meet a friend's friend and they're a particular type of character that maybe you haven't experienced before, it almost makes that okay. You know, you, you almost like give yourself a bit of a license to to discover that voice within yourself maybe. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, you know, ideally the uh the the idea process and the sort of discovering of of uh of concepts is is more or less sort of uh subconscious you know it's for me it's much more about the input than the output it's sort of what i'm exposing myself to and what i'm letting in uh if i'm like thinking of my mind as a sponge you know it's like when is it time to wring it out you know and and uh and i think the the it's far less for me about specific memories of a person or an experience and more about 
when I've had enough experiences or I've had enough input and knowing when it's time to let it start to let it seep out through the work, you know, um, I don't meet a person and say, I'm going to write a song about them. It's more like, I think I've met enough people like that, that there's enough to write about here. Were there any particular, um, you know, complaints or situations or scenarios from, from being an ombudsman for the police that presumably you're, you can, you can say now what's the statute of limitations? I don't think, I honestly don't think that legally I could say anything. It's very like, you know, it was a high security office, multiple, uh, points of like security clearance full, like, you know, national police vetting wow. on my on my person and my, and my history i um but i do i mean you know not to get too specific but i do remember a few times receiving complaints um that were friends of mine and people or people i knew from from high school or primary school like recognizing names i would get an insight into like oh i guess that guy got arrested and was mistreated i remember reading a uh a complaint from someone like I, I was like oh i guess that guy's into cocaine now and got arrested for possession i immediately got this whole impression from the from the file that you know knowing that he was a wealthy guy or came from money and reading the complaint written quote unquote by him maybe his lawyer or his family it was immediately clear that this guy felt above the law and felt the impression that his family or his lawyer were giving him was that like yeah you got busted with coke but let's focus on the police mistreatment here and let's make you out to be a young guy who just got who was out having fun with some friends made a bad choice and the police didn't need to treat him that way it's a very privileged kind of so you know this is this is the kind of thing i'm talking about you get so much information from the way that someone responds to catastrophe and i'm talking about like personal tragedies or trauma and and being in a position where i had access to all that information you know a rich kid gets busted with coke you'd have to have pretty good legal representation i think or at least be told by someone directly that if you've been arrested there's an avenue where you can complain about how you were arrested that's i guess what i'm talking about you get an indication of how someone responds to uh, a significant like being arrested is a significant life event and you get a huge amount of information from how they deal with that you know and i guess that's a pretty good example of like maybe something that informed a song like marlon brando or, or you know a number of songs probably there's a bit of that dna in there that sort of indignant belligerent response to consequence that and, and an element element of denial as well you know like I've done something wrong, but I'm going to focus on how the consequences affected me as opposed to why I'm facing the consequences. We were taught at the at the office, we'd have maybe a yearly meeting and we were taught about, oh, well, essentially an empathy threshold. Mm. There's only so much a person can care about a thing before it starts to, I mean, our, 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 uh, attention spans and our our capacity for emotional uh output is is limited chemically Mm -hmm. 
we were taught to, well, at least told to sort of monitor our, our emotional well-being and, and, and keep, keep track of whether or not the, the content of the job was maybe pushing us towards a, a depressed state or an anxious state. I mean, I've never been as anxious as I was when I worked at that office, purely because of the constant amount of information. I mean, I was really just a data clerk, you know, but I just was in a position where I was sort of the the entry point for all of this information that would mm. then need to be sifted through. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think I had 100% reached and crossed my empathy threshold and and I, I couldn't do the job anymore by the end of it. I mean, I, I think there were two things that happened. I, I quit that job because I uh, was sure that that we had a good record under our, under our belt that no one had heard yet. But also I think I was just, uh, I was just cooked, you know, well done. Did you have much training for that? I mean, did you go to school for that? It's, well, it's I, a high level job. I got, I got really fortunate, you know, cause I, um, when I, I started at university and I've just always been horrible at school. Uh, I, I, I'm just one of those sort of fools that thinks that my opinion and my thoughts are, are stronger than just following a, a syllabus. Um, so I was always thought I was going to be some sort of writer because uh, I couldn't stick to systems. I'm not, not very good at maths. I don't know how to present something and get it graded based on what is already known. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, mm-hmm. It's like, why am I doing something to get a good grade but all i'm really doing is presenting information that the person grading it already knows and i'm not don't mean to belittle that process because it's like an important one education is like i think maybe the at the end of the day the most important thing and understanding systems and understanding their the the way they function is like massive and uh i certainly appreciate it. i'm just not very good at it literally my first term at university i i saw a position open up at a at a at the grants management office which was essentially i was managing um grant applications for scientific researchers that were they were trying to get funding from the government and it was a really low administrative position and uh i don't know if i want to put it all the way down to nepotism but my sister was working at that office and I'm sure she put a good word in for me. You know, I was like 18. And uh, and I landed a, a casual position working at first three days a week so I could continue doing school. But then once I started earning money, you know, mm. um, and I realized that I could spend that money on maybe renting a studio, buying equipment, uh, it became really a really easy decision. So I committed to a full-time position at that office. And then because it was a technically a government job i was immediately put into a, a pool of of trained government administrators and so i was able to work at a you know for the first seven eight years of my adult life i worked at maybe four or five different government agencies and the ombudsman is just the one that i stayed at the longest roy do you remember alex going through that yeah, yeah, I remember well. Uh, I, I was actually at, at university at the same time at the university where Alex was working in that office. So we'd go and get Chinese food and stuff at lunch and 
Yeah. Occasionally grab a couple beers, maybe. <laughs> and yeah. 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 I do remember that. You mentioned just at the at the end of there, Alex. You know, if you, you, money's in your account, and you figure you can do. You know, all of a sudden, there's that. There's a, a liberation there. There's a freedom. Yeah, I, I think me and Roy have been heavily focused on on earning. Basically, as soon as we, we weren't well, out of high school yet. We start. We, yeah, we started working in high school. You know, um, Roy, def- you had a job before me. You were working at the pharmacy or the fruit. Was it the restaurant? I had a, I had a great job at the fruit shop. I had a great job at the Hobbit's Cafe, making bacon egg sandwiches. I was the fucking grill king. <laughs> you, you also, you also worked for a pharmacy, right? I worked for a pharmacy. That was a great job. I was using my dad's Hyundai XL to go and deliver. Uh, whatever prescriptions to the the old folks of uh of our hometown and uh yeah Brilliant. grab a little side cash along the way but the hobbits cafe were great uh kelvin and i can't remember the the other lady's name but two uh lovely uh a gay gentleman and a and a, and a lesbian lady from uh vietnam and they really showed me the ropes about showing up on time and not fucking around and Mm. We all went out to the Mardi Gras together and had it. Yeah, that was a great job. I met wonderful people there. This is a cafe that's like uh, essentially on Bondi Beach. Oh, yeah, it was a dream job. So it's like summertime. It's a happening spot. People going to the Hobbits. 17 but- years old. I'd come out after my shift all stinking of beetroot and egg, fried egg, 60 bucks in my pocket. <laughs> great. <laughs> Go jump straight in the water. Yeah. Beautiful. Roy was Roy's always been cashed up. Yeah, yeah. Long time I've had, yeah. <laughs> Just Got like brains. independently a very wealthy person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we. I, so my, I guess my first job was at a cafe. It doesn't really count because I, I, uh, I just, I try. You know the hospitality thing, and uh, I think maybe I maybe my ego's too. I remember this job. You were great at that. At the um, the muffin stop. No, it was uh, fuck. What was it called? <laughs> was it called Coffee Club? Coffee Club. That's it. Yeah. How um, old are we? This was fucking a long time ago. Sixteen. <laughs> Sixteen. And it's just, I just remember, you know, we we've also me and Roy have also worked in kitchens together and done delivery, you know, at restaurants and stuff. Um. Al Cam's the king of the kitchen. Don't underplay yourself, really. <laughs> fast forward, fast forward ten years from this, we're twenty. You know, saying you were at the ombudsman at the time. We were working at the pizza shop together. Yeah, you were the dough king, mate. You were flattening <laughs> that stuff out, putting it in the pan, doing lots of dishes. Lots of dishes. We kind of had this. If the music thing didn't work out, we were gonna try these. We worked for these two brothers at a pizza joint. I won't mention the name or, or who these people are, but no. They were just cowardly. We just saw the way they were running the business. I remember one night. Yeah, fearful people. One night, it got really busy, you know, and a busy night's a good night because me and Roy, are, you know, we're in and out of the shop delivering. There's always something to do. And just right when it was heating up around nine o'clock, I saw one of our bosses. There were two brothers and he took the phone off the hook because he didn't want any more orders because he was just, I guess, freaking out. And I just sort of thought we need to either be running this place or or leave because this is dead end. You know, yeah. this guy's running this place into the ground. He's not accepting orders when he has like a team that could easily handle it. Oh, man. Yeah, the failure was infectious there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Breathing it in like black mold. <laughs> I wonder if that's, um, you know, had an impact on the way that you organize yourself 
as a group, as a team, as musicians, as a business, you know, because because you see things like that happen and you think, okay, I'm going to learn from that and I'm not going to do that, but I am going to do that other thing that your other boss did. You know, I find that quite interesting because more or less, no one's really taught us how to be self-employed. No one's really taught us how to be organized in that sense. Well, we definitely say yes to a lot of things, you know, and that's that is that exact that example is we never take the phone off the hook. Yeah, that it's, way. it's true. <laughs> um, and I guess both of our our dads had a crack at running their own business to varying degrees of success, and I mean, contextually, they're both they've raised families and they're still, you know, they worked into their ripe old age both still busy men i think we were taught just to like opportunity comes when you're busy not when you're sitting on your hands you know and that's it if the work's there you got to grab it you know yeah i was just taught my dad just said to me like when i was leaving the house um he just said he just said income it's it's about income as long as you've got income you know then sky's the limit doesn't matter what it is one dollar thousand dollars just keep that income coming in that's difficult as a musician we're lucky we managed to years and years ago get once you get the momentum going and you get those shows happening you can sort of we stayed on the road for the longest time leading up to covid you know because once you start booking the shows in europe america australia you can sort of cycle through it and stay working but it took a lot of work for us to get to that point being an Australian band, getting anywhere out of the country is a lot of money and a long way. And yeah. so do you remember the first time that you were like, fuck it, let's do it. Let's, 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 because it's, it's a risk, right? It, it's, it's a big risk. Yeah. And, and it's certainly not easy. You know, I, it's because of jobs like these, uh, that, we were able to put some cash together and make it happen. It also helped that we weren't like a five piece. It was just me and Roy. And we were also doing all the driving and, and tour managing. So there were, it was me and Roy were the only employees of the business. Our expenses on our first US tour included the flights over. And then we bought a car for, uh, for 2000 US, which is a bit more Australian. And then we bought the flights back at some point during the tour. Yeah, we were operating on like we would get paid in cash for the shows. The cash would go into the fuel and we'd just stay wherever we could. And we did that a number of times. Earn and burn. Yeah. So it was very frugal, you know, mm-hmm. um, and still not cheap. But I think compared to what traditionally bands experience, you know, in terms of van rental, gear rental, we we just basically, I mean, I, I Anyway, I tell any any young act or any anyone who wants to get into the business. I the first thing I did when I got over to Europe was contact all the promoters that I liked and tell them I told them I'd work for free, knowing that every promoter needs that fifty, hundred, two hundred pounds because that's their their grocery money for the next week. So as soon as as soon as you have a support act, say I'll play for free and the music doesn't suck. You start getting work and are they not going to be suspicious? I think they, people were suspicious of us no matter what, you know. Yeah, I mean, the suspicion is always gonna be there. We're very <laughs> sus people. But um he they I remember the first 
show I got in London uh, was a, a gentleman running a promotional company. And I guess, you know, no, I, I also had the confidence that I knew the music was good. I liked the music very much. So it was like just a matter of finding other people that did it. But that little kicker that there's someone out there who's who believes in themselves enough to say, I'll do it for free. I mean, that line in itself, that mentality, I think, helped people. It was a fast way of saying, look, I'm not fucking around and I really think this is good shit. Mm. Put me on, I'll do it for free and I'll, I'll prove it, you know? What year was that in London? That would have been 2013, 2014. We just had Jumping the Shark. We had like a couple of hundred copies on vinyl that we pressed ourselves and it was available for free online. We just had it on a website and you had to right click the file name and download each song onto your desktop. For me, that's far nicer aesthetic than pressing play on a screen. I feel like, you know, even if it's just a tiny bit of work. The idea was to like make sure that people really wanted to hear the music and they had to have it to listen to it because I really, I still to this day have a problem with people being able to swipe away. That's why we don't do live stuff on, we don't do live performances on Instagram or on the internet. Cause it's just like, how, I, I, I don't want to perform to anyone that can twitch their thumb and I disappear. It's, a, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? It's kind of fucked. <laughs> Welcome okay. to our world, man. <laughs> is is socials like like you know? It's in your lyrics. It's there in 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 your world. I mean, that's part of the part of the job. We always treated it that way, just as something that. It was a tool in the, you know, tool in the toolbox. We're trying mm-hmm. to broadcast the music as far as possible. We're mm-hmm. pretty good writers, the two of us, and you know, reasonably magnetic and charming, etc. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've always just, I mean, not even tried. In a way, it's fun, but yeah, social media is definitely a part of it. If you're a musician, you got to light a fire under people, promote your shit, right? And and we also kind of still have this mentality of. Uh, we want to push the music beyond the stage and beyond the record. So any avenue that we can tell or expand the world and and bring people around the fire, you know, so to speak, mm. is a good thing. I, I I really don't want to become the person that like min sort of whinges and 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 moans about technology and about instagram and about tiktok and i don't understand these things it's just you know another way of telling a story and if you feel like telling a story you do it you know the energy of the crew is important you know when we're on tour uh if there's positivity and 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 jubilation in the air then we're probably going to be pretty active on social media if we're going through a stressful run and we're unsure about the future you probably won't see much of us online uh i think that might be true to most people if you're not seeing me online, I'm either we're either working on something like very hard to the point where it's all consuming, or I'm just having a rough week. <laughs> Twitter's changed a lot though. Twitter changed um 
I don't know very much. We when we got on Twitter, it was all like, "How weird can we make this?" I live tweeted my whole life for a couple of years there. <laughs> it's now like a news feed, you know. It's kind of its functions changed a little. If I hear like a loud explosion in my neighborhood, I don't go to a news website. I go to Twitter and type in Red Hook explosion and see if like someone else knows what the fuck is going on. After jumping the shark, you had a voice, right? You know, you had these experiences and these these characters. Did you have to kind of push the envelope to to continue on through that? Was that sort of first seed of an idea of those voices? Has that kind of proved to be the the, the, the main point of Alex Cameron? Um, well, there's, there's it's interesting because you look at the timeline. Uh, Forced Witness was written before Jumping the Shark was officially released by a record label. So uh, we had very little sort of, so to speak, mainstream exposure at that point. So, and, and I think what that taught, I know it, it taught me is that the creative sort of discovery of ideas has nothing to do with how successful a person might be or how much exposure they've had or how well known they are as an artist you know I, the idea realm and the and the songwriting realm that exists in completely separately from the the career element of it all because i mean you know there are so the world's so rich and full of character and and life that i've never felt a need to make music because people are listening you know um but i think feeling that jumping the shark was was such a positive experience for me writing it and then such a positive experience for me and roy performing it and touring it we were getting such we were having such an impact on these stages you know i mean london's been awesome you know london is feels very much like a hometown show from our tiniest little shows in London, it's always been such a such a hoot. Every single show has just been this perfect little, you know, you know the room's grown a little bit. The people have just the, the people have stayed the same but doubled. It's a wonderful family feeling in London for us. Interesting mm. range of people, ages and and how people look and and, and types of folk. That's the best thing about our shows, honestly. The, the, the I mean, obviously playing the show and the music's fantastic, but. Like you said, the range of people, different types of person. It's, it's truly a beautiful thing. And it, it's, uh, you know, it's nice to see the music reflected by that. Has it forced you to almost take yourselves more seriously? I mean, I kind of has, maybe that's the, that's kind of a blunt way of saying it, I suppose, but. Well, we've always taken it very, very seriously. Um, uh, kind of joking there, but we, <laughs> we, we, we do, we do take it very seriously, but. Uh, almost the joke. It, it, it is, it is, um, it is, you do get a sense that, you know, it's very important, you know, when people are turning up to shows, we've played enough shows with nobody in the room to understand, uh, you know, we're not a hype act, you know, we're trying to build something here that's, that we can do for the rest of our lives. So there's, there's a sense of, of, of community that you get, you know, I think the best feeling I can get from a show is like. I was a part of something with everybody there as opposed to I gave something to a room full of people, you know, and that's more and more. That's what we're, 
but you know that's what we're experiencing it shows is that uh it's just a very positive supportive understanding audience you know that come to hear the stories and and have found a way to either relate to them or enjoy them you know and once you once you get that feeling that's a that's a feeling that i'm you know i really want to cultivate you know i'm definitely not afraid of that feeling i i hope to experience it more what you said there about the, the stories and it's it's like reading a book you know it's like reading a, a short books sometimes just those those snapshots well a friend of mine a friend of mine uh kai campos he's in a, a band called mount kimby he very early on in our friendship probably just as i started to write songs he said you know when you're writing songs that they are it's a it, they like short stories you know that was exactly how he described them to me and i would i'd been writing shi- short stories i just said shite stories <laughs> um i've been writing these shite stories for a while <laughs> i thought i'd turn them into some shite songs <laughs> just before we started the interview i asked roy well roy and i were talking about not telling people your plans um for whatever reasons, you know, but whether it's a superstition or whether it's, you want to keep that fuel inside of you. Do you mm. see anything inside yourself um, on that? I mean, I'm, I, I'm hesitant to talk about opportunities that aren't solid yet. I'd much rather reflect on a thing that happened as opposed to talk to someone about what might happen. Um, but I think that might be just a sense of like, I don't want to sort of prattle on about, I don't want to be all talk, you know, it's less a superstition and more like I was always taught that someone that that spoke too much about what they wanted to do was a wanker, you know. There's some there's there's something nice about letting something happen, uh as opposed to like trying to talk it into existence, you know. Yeah, quiet reflection. That's the real pay dirt. Mm-hmm. Was there quiet reflection and and in in you know Alex Cameron becoming both of your full time things? It was maybe a terse handshake. Yeah, <laughs> there's a there's a partnership contract somewhere in the inbox. Um, yeah, I I think um, I think we try to keep each other aware of of where we're at and what needs to be done. And when there's something worth celebrating, you know, we celebrate it. Uh, and then it's just, I mean, we also kind of made the. We, we went really hard at it for the first few years on the road, a lot of drinking and a lot of sort of make, you know, we, we, we were just excited to be there. So we made the most of every single night and, you know, returning home from that, those, that sort of big first run of shows we did in, in Europe and, and, uh, America, you know, around 2015, 2016, doing a lot of support slots. We kind of realized that we should maybe be partying like we're at the top when we're at the top you know don't want to like delude ourselves into thinking that like you play a couple of full rooms and you're the support act and all of a sudden you're like the hottest thing in the world you know because uh, it can you can feel like that you know especially coming from you know sydney in australia so far away and all of a sudden we're doing madison square garden with the killers or you know whatever it may be it's tempting to be like, yes, I did this, you know, I deserve to really destroy my life now, <laughs> but it, it's, it's important that we remind each other that it's like, there's a lot of work to be done. That's the thing that the, the day, 
that it became a full time. I mean, there was such an overlap between when we were still working jobs and when we had the when we had Jumping the Shark and and even Forced Witness out. The day that it kind of became a full time thing for me was a, a day that I got laid off from a job. <laughs> like it was, so it, it sort of dampened the celebration a little bit because it it, it heralded the beginning of probably a solid two years of us sleeping on couches and touring nonstop, mm. which was great fun, like you said, but yeah. Is is that, you know, and, and to you specifically, Roy, you know, having someone you, you've, you've known so much of your life, being the, the position that you are in, do you feel like it's within your job to, within your remit, I suppose, to, to help guide it? I'm going to get misty-eyed here, Al, but the experience for me has been like, you know, having known Alex my whole life is, and knowing the whole, Oh, not the whole story, but as much of the story as you can know being in the room. I, uh, yeah, it's just a feeling of immense pride. And, you know, imagine rooting for your, you know, your favorite friend to do well and then they fucking do it and then you're there as well. <laughs> and in terms of guidance, Al's not, you know, Al's got a pretty, you got the roadmap out. You, you know which way we're going, where we're going. Every now and then there's a, a funny, t- you know, a one-way street I point out or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe if we get off the interstate here you know what i mean yeah uh, yeah a little guidance but definitely it's definitely. not a ship that needs a whole bunch of steering we got wet sails we're humming along is that even the same <laughs> i don't know it sounds good to me yeah um yeah from my perspective it's it's um i don't want to speak in in uh cliches or anything but you know the partnership's been extremely important and like and vital you know and mm. i think you know, it's we we've always sort of had the mentality that you leave your ego at the door, and a win for win for either of us is a win for all of us. You know, mm-hmm. and so we're just kind of in a in a place where we can confidently, uh, you know, we know each other's skill set, and we know each other's strengths, and it's about sort of maintaining the culture of like support you know there's been very little i mean roy unless you're harboring any ill will which i'd understand (laughs) um uh very little competition you know i find in other bands that i've been in there's like an unspoken kind of like uh and it can bring people down an unspoken sense of like uh who's who's doing what and who's deserves what this is just like fuck all of that we're just gonna, sport. yeah. We're just gonna fucking exactly. You know, it's like who's more important. You know, what position on the field is more important doesn't really matter. It's ex- exactly right. It's a, it's a, like a team of people. You know, and we've got other people now involved that are that are proving to be like in their own way very like important as well. You know, so it's like, I mean, our mentality. I think Roy, you'd agree, is like when other people are being paid well, we'll be being paid well. So the idea is to build a, a a crew of people that we really feel motivated to get paid so that we can join in on that, you know. There was definitely a moment where I think independently, Roy and I decided that we'd worked and i remember a specific moment where roy you said to me that we'd spent enough time lining other people's pockets it's true 
we're good employees, man. Uh, we're really sharp, showing up on time, mm-hmm. do our shit diligently. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, we wanted some of that cash to come back into our pocket and I'm sure we'll get there one day. Yeah, well, <laughs> we will, we will. It has to happen. If it doesn't happen, we'll just die. Um, <laughs> I think we we um, we decided at a, at, a, at a, you know, there was a point where we said, okay, let's start to think about how we can be living on our terms and earning on our terms as opposed to like watching other businesses thrive or other operations kind of uh, growing on the back of our work, you know? And I do really strongly feel like we did our time in the workforce, you know, that to the point where we, I mean, literally had enough money and to invest in ourselves and our own sort of prospects, you know, and it took a long fucking time, you know, um, working from the age of 16 to into our, you know, mid to late twenties to even be able to fathom what it would look like to try and make the leap, you know, ourselves. But, and, uh, you know, maybe we thought we'd, we used to have the most, the funniest conversations, you know, <laughs> like our oh, next year we'll make this much money. And then it's like, okay, next year. <laughs> <laughs> Any ideas like that for Oxy music? I got the number 70,000 in mind. I'd love us to have mm. 70 grand. 70 grand's a good number. <laughs> our number used to be 15 grand. That was a, yeah, when we got our, when we got a $15,000 deal, that was, a, that was a celebration. Mm-hmm. It's different when you've earned that off something you've started than when you are paid that for, you know, nine to five, 350 days a year, you know. I don't know if that math checks out, but there's weekends in there and holidays. Thank you so much for for being up for this. Really looking forward to the record. Looking forward to the next London show. Thank you, Giles. Thanks for having us. See you, Giles. Alex Cameron and Roy Malloy. Alex's new album, Oxy Music, is out on the 11th of March. And I'll be back this time next week with Leah from the Mysterines. I've been working all day for me, mate, on the side Running around like a blue-ass fly I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day for me, mate Every bleeding minute I've been on the go Up and down the ladder like a fiddler's elbow I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day for me, mate This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.